second part of our day retreat here in St. Louis. Let's consider some principles of Thomism together. I, I said earlier on that we would consider both aspects of it. We will spend most of our time, though, on the broad definition of Thomism, which is how to train your mind, how to think in terms of philosophy and theology, like St. Thomas, how to follow the principles of St. Thomas, Aquinas, and theology, and philosophy. And we will see some of the consequences of this. <clears throat> and then, at the end, briefly consider a couple points of controversy with regard to the Thomistic school as such, as opposed to certain other schools, like the Scotists or the Molinists. <clears throat> First of all, I should understand that Thomas established himself pretty quickly after his death. There was an initial opposition to him in all places at the University of Paris, where he distinguished himself so wonderfully as a professor. There was a brief backlash after his death. Some of it probably was tied into that same issue of the bitterness over admitting the mendicant orders to the doctorate. Uh, so that some of that might have been mixed in. So we're, we're not so surprised to behold this initial reaction against this. So the Bishop of Paris, actually, right at the time of, of St. Thomas's death, already wished to censure certain of his opinions and, and prevent this dominance of Aristotelianism, the, the philosophy of Aristotle from taking over. This didn't last very long. At this time, Albertus Magnus was still alive and he came to Paris to defend the teachings of his recently deceased student. And, and in the end, Thomas will prevail. Already by the early 14th century, the Dominican order was declaring unequivocally that the doctrine of St. Thomas Aquinas has been received as sound and solid throughout the world. His works spread all throughout the intellectual world. By the middle of the 14th century, they were being read everywhere. His, his Summa Theologica had already supplanted Peter Lombard as the official textbook of all the Dominican schools and was read everywhere. He became the great master of all the universities. And this continued on into the 15th and 16th centuries. Even in the midst of the Protestant revolt, there's something I'd like to read there. I brought this up the other day when I was at <clears throat> in Warsaw giving a conference on the history of the Council of Trent, where it Chesterton, in his Life of St. Thomas Aquinas, which I certainly hope you all read, you come home, come away from this with anything, I know you're not going to read everything, but if you, you could read G.K. Chesterton's Life of St. Thomas Aquinas, very, very enjoyable to read, very funny, and if you, could, you could read it in a couple of days, it would be a delight. But he says early on here in the introduction, it is the conviction, I've expressed once or twice, that the 16th century schism was really a belated revolt of the 13th century pessimists. 
It was a backwash of the old Augustinian Puritanism against the Aristotelian liberality. And that's how he begins his biography of Thomas Aquinas. In fact, we could see to, to some degree what happened with Martin Luther was a bit of it was a bit of the revenge against uh, the, the displacement of Platonism and what followed. Let's not forget that he says Augustinian. Remember that Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, right? Augustinian monk, and he was he was up against he was up against Johannes Tetzel, and he was preaching the indulgences in, in Germany. And, in, and initially, that would be the reaction. Leo the Tenth will think that, in fact, that the, what's going on here is just that there's just a quibble between the Augustinians and the Dominicans again. So that's what doesn't make too much out of it at first. It goes far deeper than that because. Martin Luther wouldn't even be possible. Everything that Martin Luther taught wouldn't be possible without a total rejection of the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, especially the foundation of everything we talk about here this afternoon, which is the St. Thomas and his moderated realism, his moderated realism. So that's, we find ourselves secure with St. Thomas Aquinas in this Aristotelian system of moderated realism, a system based on common sense, based on reality. So going against, on the one hand, the absolute realism of the Platonists, by which things we were talking about before, like here, the idea of a chair, the idea of a table, all these things are, in fact, for Plato, these ideas were absolutes. They were actually dwelt in this realm of the form somewhere, and that these things were actually had a life of their own, even outside of the material world. <clears throat> now, that'll be moderated by Aristotle and by Thomas Aquinas who say, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. That, that's, that's going way too far there. Uh, in fact, the, these, these things have a reality to them, certainly. The ideas that we have, the universals that we put down, to, are, they, they are real, but, but they exist only in the material world. I mean, the, the idea, there's no idea of a chair, the idea of a table, these things don't have an independent existence. They exist be, in the material world, but then they form an idea in our heads. Nevertheless, they are, they are truly real. Well, there'll be a reaction to that after Thomas Aquinas especially, which will be the foundation of all the modern mess, which is a, on the Franciscan school, there'll be a certain William of Ockham, right, who will go completely in the other direction and say, no, 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 no. In fact, that's, certainly that's nonsense about this idea of, of, of concepts that we have, universal concepts dwelling in an existence all on their own. No, that's, that's not true. But in fact, the whole thing is fake. In fact, all these things, they're nothing but names that we give to things. Nothing but names that we give to things. Now that's, so to say that those two things are chairs and that's, they, they have a common reality, being a chair, no, that, that, that's our personal construct. That's what we do. We, we give names to things, but that's not reality. That's just, that's just names that we slap on things. All right? just names that we slap on things. So that will be the philosophy of nominalism, and that will go against Aristotle, will go against St. Thomas Aquinas, and Martin Luther will be very much a disciple of Occam. He will be very much influenced by this whole school, and he will be a great nominalist, and that will be the foundation of everything he says either, because we just give names to things. His whole teaching afterwards, his rejection of Catholic teaching will be based on, the, on this faulty philosophy. So we see where that leads you. All ideas have consequences. That's how Martin Luther will be able to say something that which wouldn't make any sense at all to Thomas Aquinas when he says that a man is simul justus et peccator. He said he's, a, he's just and sinner at the same time. 
Well, there's a contradiction in terms for Thomas. He'd say, no, you can't be a just and sin at the same time. You can't be, that's not the same thing as, for instance, saying that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. That's not a contradiction in terms. That's he has two different natures. He's two natures in one person. That's not a contradiction. Uh, so that's not the same thing here. But, the, but, but for, for Luther, you can do that. Or even his idea how he'll hang on in, certain, in a certain way to the idea of the real presence. Where he'll say that, well, no, it, it really is still bread and wine, but it's also Jesus Christ. He's there with it. Like, okay. So, and furthermore, what goes along with that, what's even more disastrous, is in terms of morality. It's in terms of morality, is that uh, with that with that system, Occam would say, in fact, yes, there too, uh, morality is quite arbitrary. Things are wrong just because God say they're wrong. God says they're wrong, and then they're wrong. That's it. So it's not. It's not. Things can't actually be inherently wrong. It's just God says this is wrong, and therefore it's wrong. So. It's all, about, it's all about just obeying rules. It's all about obeying rules, which will be disastrous for morality, because afterwards that will lead people to think in that way and say, well, yeah, in fact, it is quite arbitrary. In fact, it's impossible. Christian morality is just a total impossibility. In fact, look, look at all this set of rules that we have to follow. They go so far against all our natural inclinations. It, it's like God just wound us up. He put us in a rat race. You know, it's like, what, what, what was the point? You know, here, all these rules that we have to obey, these rules of morality, things we can't do, we know what we like to do. We have our natural inclinations, eating, drinking, sense of touch, all these things that we're naturally inclined to, and God just says, don't do that. You know, that's not fair, right? So far, far cry from morality as we'll see it presented by Thomas Aquinas. But this is what it'll be for, this will lead to the, the great pessimism of, of Martin Luther until he finally just blows up and and can't deal with it anymore, you know, this is, and finally realize, oh, what am I wasting my time for? In fact, yeah, we're, we're just miserable, wretched sinners. There's nothing we can do about it. But all that matters is making an act of faith, that is, an act of trust in, in being saved by Jesus Christ. He covers you with your merits, wretched sinner that you are. Grace doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't transform you in any way. But it covers all your sins. So you can go on being a horrible sinner knowing that you're saved which is what it'll lead to. So the, the horrible pessimism that, that gives birth to this will lead, lead to, initially at least in the Protestant world, a great exuberance that the Protestant world will actually be a happy world at first when they, when they rebel against the church and they'll even boast of their ability to sin. They'll go on to have just have sin fests just so that they can show off how saved they are um, because that's what you are now. Simul justus hypocrite. You're a sinner and, and a just at the same time. So that's, that's where that whole system will lead. But then, of course, afterwards, all the heirs of the Protestant revolt will go back into pessimism. Once the party's over, they're more and more pessimistic, and then the whole Protestant world will end up being atheist. <coughs> but that all started with this break with the beautiful synthesis that we had with St. Thomas Aquinas, this beautiful accord between faith and reason. Right? between faith and reason, which are, are never, for, for Luther, they're in utter conflict. For Thomas, certainly not. For Thomas, certainly not. There's a, Thomas, there must, be, there must be an accord with Athens and Jerusalem. You know, the reference there, of course, to Tertullian, right? You've heard that before. The church father Tertullian, who angrily exclaimed at one point, what, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? It's a, and sometimes he's held up as a sort of proto-Lutheran. That's not, that's not totally fair to Tertullian. There's other passages where he, he certainly says that there's much we can learn from, from pagan philosophers. But, but this, this conflict has always been there. You know, 
as opposed to someone like a, a very brilliant mind like Justin Martyr, uh, my favorite quote, as many of you know, from Justin Martyr, whose feast we just celebrated, is what does he say in his time? He says, I'm a Christian. You know, he's part of the philosophical school of, the second, of second century Rome, who says, well, yes, well, and this is really very much in the spirit of the, what we're going to talk about with, with Thomas. He said, I'm a Christian. He said, and it's not that, it's not that I reject all the thinking that's come before the Christian era. It's not that I reject all that. In fact, he says, anything good or beautiful that has ever been said belongs to us. Uh -huh. Any, you know, it, anything, it ever, anything that's ever been good, true, beautiful, that has ever uttered before the time of, uh, of Christ, well, all that belongs to us Christians. It's all, it's all truth, and it belongs to us. So it's our great, it's our great heritage. But, St. Augustine will make the same, make a different metaphor. He'll say it's like the, as the Hebrews left Egypt, right? They left with the spoils, right? So they left with the spoils. So too, the Christians make their exit from the pagan world, but they leave with spoils. They take the good stuff with them, and, and so that's what we take with them. And so that's, it's in this spirit, this, this broad spirit that we have, this great synthesis that we will find with, with Thomas Aquinas. And... The triumph of Thomas then will really be at the Council of Trent. We will see his great triumph over the Protestant revolt at the Council of Trent when the Summa Theological will be placed on the altar. You know, the Cathedral of Trent will be placed on the altar alongside the Bible. We have two books, the Bible and the Summa Theological will be placed both on the altar. So Thomas will be the guide of the, of the fathers of Trent throughout the Council. And we'll see that, especially in the teaching on sin, justification, and the sacraments, the total canonization of the teaching of, Tam of Thomas Aquinas. After the time of Trent, though, we will slowly start to see a, a decline of Thomism. There has already been reactions to it, both from the Protestant circles, who violently rejected him, but also even in some Catholic circles before the Council of Trent, amongst the humanists. Right? So one thing that happened now, especially with the, with the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire in 1453 is that, yes, a lot, of, a lot of the scholars from the East will flee to the West. There'll be a new contact between them, and a lot of the learning from the East will come into the West. There'll be a rediscovery of Greek. Greek will start to be learned by all men of letters throughout the Western world in the 15th and 16th centuries, and there'll start to be a great snobbery toward the scholastic era. So the 13th century now will be looked down on. You know, we always have to be aware of eras that give themselves a name, right? So, I mean, the Renaissance called itself the Renaissance, which is not, so you have to be a little wary of that when you've got, you know, we're, we're going to call our own era the rebirth. You know, that's, mm, I don't know. So, I'd say it will only be, only be uh, outdone by an even more evil era, the Enlightenment, right? Which will call itself the Enlightenment. So, and of course, what does that mean? They look back on what came before, and they'll call it what? So in the architecture, they'll call it Gothic, right? Gothic, what's that mean? Gothic's an insult. Gothic's a way of looking at it saying, yes, it's, it's, that's, that's the way the Goths would do things, those barbarians. That's how they built churches. Um, not like our enlightened times now. And, <clears throat> and indeed, that whole era would say, well, at least some of it we could call the Middle Ages. The, the earlier part will call it the Dark Ages, but the time of St. Thomas Aquinas is the Middle Ages. You know, it's, they're just starting to crawl out of darkness, they can at least form some coherent sentences, but it's not, it's not the great time of, of the Renaissance now, where they, they'll just look down at people like Thomas Aquinas and all those years and say, well, yes, but look at them. They didn't know any Greek. They didn't know any Hebrew. And 
and, and even their Latin. Well, look at the way they write Latin. It's nothing like Cicero. All right, so, and this will, go, this will go to great extremes. An extreme will be corrected, especially by the Council of Trent and the liturgical reforms of Pius V, uh, because it really got out of hand at the point. It was getting to the point before the Council of Trent where even in some, uh, in, many, in many cases, they, 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 even among Christian humanists, they would say, well, it's just not fitting to our good God. We should never use words that Cicero wouldn't have used. Should only use a very lofty, cultivated Latin. It got, it got to the extreme where, in certain cases, they wouldn't even say Christ. In Latin, they would say Apollo instead, because that, that would be at least a word that Cicero would have used. So, I mean, just horrifying, and, you know, as, uh, which unfortunately did have a lot, and in some places even had a, made its mark on the liturgy, which hasn't been totally effaced. Uh, but as they, as they said at the time, it's uh, acesit latinitas, recesit pietas. So it, uh, the Latin has Latin descends and piety descends. So, <clears throat> this, <clears throat> this will continue, though, unfortunately, after the Council of Trent, starting in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, we'll continue to see a bit of a decline then in the influence of Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> and a new need, too, to combat the, the Protestants seemingly on different grounds, fighting them on their own territory. Because the Protestants will invent new sciences, right? For instance, they'll, they'll have their own scripture studies, things like that. We'll say, no, forget about these presentations of theology. Let's go straight to the Bible. They'll even go straight to the church fathers, the Protestants. They'll say they're going to invent the science of patrology. You think, that's, well, maybe that wasn't that a Catholic thing? Well, no, it wasn't. Because now, if you look at an, an author like Thomas Aquinas, does he quote the fathers of the church? Most certainly. On every page, he quotes the fathers of the church, but not as a science on its own. It's part of theology. He quotes the Bible. He quotes tradition. He quotes the fathers. He quotes them all together. It's all an organic whole for Thomas Aquinas. It's the whole of our patrimony. And he keeps them together. He doesn't put them apart, the fathers, as a separate science. But that's what the Protestants will do, the same as they do for the Bible. The Bible, they say, you have to treat it apart because we use the Bible as a weapon. We find quotes in the Bible and say, look, this disproves Catholic teaching. So boom, here's a verse, here's the verse. And they'll do the same thing with the fathers. Let's pick out all the verses of the fathers that go against what, what seems to be the teaching of the church today to show that these fathers see the Catholics claim that they're their fathers, but in fact not. They're all proto-Protestants. So let's find them right, and find what they said and use them to disprove the Catholic religion. And so Catholics felt like they had to respond in turn. So they, they would have a counter-reformation, right? counter-reformation version of these sciences, where they would attack the Protestants on their own ground in the hope of gaining the victory. And so, unfortunately, that meant that in many cases they felt like the work of the scholastics, the work of Thomas Aquinas and his presentation of theology was no longer as useful. <clears throat> he also began to be depassed, too, by, by, by other, in other regions, so especially with the discoveries of, of the natural sciences which is truly a disaster because, as we'll see at least briefly today, there's nothing in the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas that goes against the modern natural sciences. On the contrary, we see that the, his presentation of natural philosophy is the veritable foundation. If we, it's a foundation that we could maintain today, even in our study of the experimental sciences. <clears throat> but now, too late, those things began to hold all the honor, the experimental sciences, now the discoveries we were making about the natural world, the movements of the heavenly bodies, 
all these things who well, it just seemed that St. Thomas had nothing to say about these things. But then finally, what would really deal the, the death blow to Thomism, it's not that, it's, it was the guillotine, right? So now, once the age of revolution came, once religious houses, especially the Dominicans, began to be closed in the countries where the revolution took place, especially France, but then all, for a time they're all over Europe, that was just a disaster. And then, in fact, it would take a long, long time for the teachings of Thomas to reclaim their place, because that, to have all these schools closed, dissolved, it was so already, they had already suffered terribly in, in all the Protestant countries, but now even in formerly Catholic countries that were now gripped by revolution, it seemed that Thomism would be totally displaced, right? And this is how it would remain until the close of the 19th century, when it would finally be revived by the great Pope Leo XIII and by his successor, St. Pius X. Then finally, Thomism would begin to crawl out of this terrible oblivion. And it would even then in the 1917 Code of Canon Law be enshrined where it would be explicitly stated in church law that, that all church teachers had to make use of the system, the method of St. Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> Let's examine then these briefly some applications of, of these principles of St. Thomas just in certain questions, and at least give you a taste for how we exercise our minds according to the system of our intellectual master. <clears throat> so one of the first ones which I, I mentioned this morning, and again, one which, of all his teachings, this one could be usually readily accepted even by modern minds, Nicolaest in intellecto quod mon prius in senso. So nothing is in the intellect which was not first in the senses. Everything that comes to us comes to us through the senses. We know by taking things in through our five senses, we look at our great soul chart, we see it goes through our five senses, it's processed in the internal senses, the imagination, the memory, cognitive central, all these things make sense of, of these things we take in, the sensory images, and then they're fed to the intellect. That's the only way. And in fact, we see that this is true. He, he meditates on this even in a hymn that you know very well, the Odoro Te Devote. And what does he say there? Visus tactus gustus in te falitur, sed auditus solum tuto creditur. So regarding our faith in this sacrament, where he says, what all our senses seem to fail us. So you know, he almost is about to say, oh, it seems that this system doesn't work, does it? Because look at the Eucharist. Sight, taste, touch. None of these reveal to us a hidden God. Just bread and wine, as far as our senses are concerned. Except, he says, what? Except one. Except hearing. Faith cometh by hearing, right? So except hearing, said audito solo, right? So that that is the it's the only avenue. But he said, nevertheless, you see, that's even our faith in the Eucharist, where it seems that our senses all fail us. He says, no, there's one sense that doesn't hearing, because we were taught, we were taught that the Eucharist contains the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And so even we see that even that knowledge has come to us through hearing. Even that knowledge has come to us through hearing. So everything comes to us through the five senses. This is the foundation of his realism. 
And that's how we know things. We know things through, through our five senses. And they even say, well, yeah, but couldn't God directly reveal things to you? Yes, but, but an example we see, God reveals things to us through our senses. He does, right? He, the apparitions even, things like that, speaking to us, it's always, he always makes use of human senses to communicate to us. <clears throat> also, now, this is important, these next couple points, when I already made mention of Martin Luther and his total rejection of reason, saying that it's a, truly an insult to faith and that pure good faith has to, be a, has to involve a blindness, has to involve a total rejection of reason. Well, first of all, I have to understand that for, for St. Thomas, there are certain points where he said, well, we have to distinguish with what is actually the object of faith and what is actually sort of a preamble to faith. So for instance, two big things, in St. Thomas's system of thought, say the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. Well, St. Thomas actually says these are not, strictly speaking, articles of faith. They're not objects of faith. And because, in fact, natural reason can arrive at these two things. So natural reason is there for us when it comes to the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. Are those things, those are truths that are revealed to us by revelation? It's true. But we could know them through natural reason. And the church enshrines this teaching by is even taught solemnly in Vatican I that, that we must believe it as an article of our faith that by our reason we can come to know the existence of God. That's an article of our faith. That it's, our reason alone can arrive by reasoning from the created world by cause and effect. We can understand that, that God does exist. <clears throat> so the existence of God can be proved that way. Just like the immortality of the soul because the soul is the form of the body and it is, at being spiritual, there's no principle in the soul that would allow it to corrupt like a material thing. Since it has no principle of corruption, therefore, by nature, the soul is immortal. And so it's something that can be seized upon by human reason that, that the soul is immortal. So these things are actually preambles to our faith. And it ties into what St. Paul says. In St. Paul in Hebrews 11.6, he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who would draw near to God must first believe that he exists and is a rewarder of those who seek him. So we see, that, although, yes, that's the beginning of faith, says St. Paul, but it's founded on something by reason. So to believe in, it's the very beginning of the creed, right? To believe in God, the Father Almighty. So you have to believe that, yes, there's a God who's almighty, but he's also a Father, that is, he responds to us. If we respond to him, if we seek him in love, that he responds to us in love. So there, there's a remuneration there with this God. And, it, and that remuneration is for us because we are created immortal. We have an immortal soul. So we can be the object of that loving reward from God. But that's founded on something that is already in our reason, namely that we have an immortal soul and that God exists. Nevertheless, and you may have heard this before, it's a famous part of Thomas's teaching is that he... He does not think, say that the existence of God is an innate idea. In other words, he doesn't say that it's already in your head and there's no way you couldn't believe it. No, you must know that God exists. No, he actually said that's not true. He said there are plenty of people who don't think God exists, and they're not crazy. So that it's, not, it's not a given. It's not innate. It's not innate. He said, no, it, it's something we can arrive at by considering the reality in which we live. We can come in as a reasonable statement so that we can get to the point he says where the statement God exists we know to be a true statement and that it is reasonable 
That's the, the farthest we can get, but it's not an innate idea that someone, someone could think otherwise. <clears throat> so he, that, that's the closest we can get. So he goes against certain other teachers, like we'll get into it now, but St. Anselm, who says, no, in fact, St. Anselm will teach, the, no, 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 it is an innate idea. In fact, it's, it's evident per se that, that, that God exists. And St. Thomas will say, no, that's not true. You could, you could deny God's existence. Uh, but, but it is something, by looking at the world around us, we can arrive at that, at that conclusion, that the statement, God exists, is a true statement. So we have already said that for Thomas, there's no conflict between faith and reason. However, we should understand, though, that faith and reason are two different things. And faith is a different way of knowing. So faith, we already know that from the scripture, again, to quote St. Paul, what does he say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the argument for things that are unseen. Well, Thomas will take this principle and say, yes, so that means there are, there are two different things here. There are, there are things that we can know by reasoning. We come to a conclusion about them. We observe evidence and we come to a conclusion. That's one way of knowing, and that's not the same as faith. So faith isn't against that, but it's a different way of knowing. You can't have both. I mean, you, you, certain things we know by that, by use of our reason, by science. That's not just experimental science, but science meaning knowledge, where we come to conclusions, reason to con conclusions. And there are things we know by faith, which just doesn't go against reason, but it's a different way of knowing. What, what is faith for him? It's not the, faith is not the blind trust of Martin Luther and the other Protestant rebels. Is faith, faith is acceptance of, of revealed truth. It's not truth that we came to by reason. It's truth that was revealed to us, and we accept it. It's still reasonable. We accept it based on the authority of the person revealing it. That's not an unreasonable thing, then. It's not a blind trust. It's, we, we see that, that person is trustworthy, whoever is revealing it, and so we accept that revealed truth. And that's why we see that, on the one hand, the existence of God can, can be something we get it to by reason, but something like the Trinity, no. Once it's been revealed to us, once we've learned about the Trinity, do we completely grasp it? No. But we see that, yes, but the Trinity is not something that goes against our reason. Once we have it, once it's been revealed to us, once we've accepted it, then we say, okay, this, my reason doesn't rebel against the Trinity. It doesn't think it is wrong or crazy, but, but I never could have gotten there by myself. I had to have it revealed to me. One God in three persons, that's beyond me. I couldn't have figured that out by myself. That it's just, oh, yeah, of course, it's one God in three persons. Once I see it, then, yes, I see that, the, okay, I do see that there's an image of that in the whole world around us. Our whole world is based on the number three. Right? Three dimensions, three primary colors, three persons in grammar, right? We have three persons, first person, second person, third person. Everything, all of our, you know, there's three states, right? Three states of, a, of any kind of matter. There's a solid, there's liquid, there's vapor, right? Everything around us seems to be, three definitely seems to be the number of reality, but that doesn't quite get us even then to, to the doctrine of one God and three persons. So that had to be revealed to us. But once it was, then, then we could accept it. <clears throat> then we could accept it, and we see that it's not, it's not in conflict with our reason. It's also a mark of the true religion, right? Any true religion has revealed doctrines that go beyond human reason. Otherwise, it's just a man-made religion, which is the problem with a religion like Islam, where what's it based on? Just, their creed is very simple. I won't utter it now because if anyone listens to this video, it turns me into a Muslim, and I'm not allowed to deny it ever again. But, I mean, the only, the, their only article of faith, besides the fact that Muhammad is a prophet, the, you know, the, only, the only article of faith is that there's one God. But what did we just, what did we just get through with? Thomas, look at that. He'll look at the Muslims and say, yeah, but that's not, 
that's not faith. There's one God, it's just an act of reason. That's just an act of reason. That's not faith yet. So in fact, your revealed religion doesn't reveal anything. It just reveals what anybody could have thought up on his own. So that's already a, it's already a strike against that. So is that really a revealed religion? Mm, doesn't seem like it. So faith and reason are not in conflict. However, certain things we know by faith and other things we know by reason. We say that for, in the second part of the Summa, we learn that man's whole goal in life is to be happy, right? To be happy. But Aristotle would already say that, but he didn't have faith yet, so he didn't know that the, the full answer to that is to be happy with God eternally. So beatitude is man's goal. That's man's goal in life. And what is that happiness that we await? The happiness that we await in the teaching of St. Thomas consists in the vision of God, the vision of God. And this is not something he makes up. It's his, him faithfully transmitting to us revelation. Because what does St. John tell us in 1 John 3? It says, when Christ comes at the end, when God appears and when the end of time is coming, he said, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is very, very, well, of course, it's going in the wrong order to say that's very Thomistic. But of course, so Thomas, you see, faithfully transmits revelation because that sounds very Thomistic, doesn't it? It says, we, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. The vision of God will be our beatitude in heaven because we see that what does that mean for our soul? We see God as he is, and therefore God comes into our soul. We see him as he is, and our, everything about us becomes like him because the things that we take in, to a certain degree, our soul always becomes like those things. That's how we take them in. That's how we process them. We have images. We have things like that becomes like him. That's why when our, when our five senses take in evil things, that's how they poison the soul because our soul becomes like them. But when we see God in the face, then we shall become like him, says St. John, because we shall see him as he is. The very fact of having the vision of God, seeing God, will make us like him. So that's the happiness of heaven that awaits us. <clears throat> now, as I, I pointed out, that the, the mystery of the Trinity well, is, is clearly a mystery of our faith. That's not... That's not a preamble like the existence of God. The, the, the Trinity, that there's one God in three persons, that is a true mystery of our faith. It's been revealed to us. Nevertheless, we can speak about it to some degree with our language, as, as the great church fathers did. We have to be very careful in our use of language there. And the most we can say there is we can distinguish the three persons. We perhaps already know this from catechism. A good catechism will tell you this. But Thomas, faithfully transmitting the teachings of the fathers, will say the only way we can really distinguish the persons is by speaking of relation. That's the only thing, way we can distinguish them. We can say that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost is not the Son, the Holy Ghost is not the Father. However, the Father is what the Son is, right? The Son is what the Father is, the Holy Ghost is what the Father and the Son is. They are all God. That's the most we can do, our poor language. That's the closest we can really get at talking about it in that way. However, in thinking about that, Thomas makes mincemeat out of the, out of the, the Greeks who at that time are, are rebelling against uh, the Latins very much and saying that they're heretics because they, in the creed we say that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. Right? So that's something, admittedly, historically, we added that to the creed. If you know the history of, of, of the creed, that's, that is true. In the West, we added those words. It proceeds from the Father and the Son. Originally, the creed said, we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the Giver, and life who proceeds from the Father. 
That's how the creed originally read. And, and everybody acknowledged that it's perfectly fine if you want to say the creed the way it was originally written. That's fine. You could say, I believe in the Holy Ghost and breathes from the Father. That's perfectly fine. Or you can even say, as the, some Greeks preferred to say, he proceeds from the Father through the Son. Perfectly fine. You can say that. However, some of the Greeks in their fury were so angry at the West for adding these words that they called them heretics, said, no, the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father alone. Well, that's heresy. You can't say that. Because, and Thomas explains it too. He said, also, just your own reason can see why that doesn't make any sense. In fact, he says, based on what we can understand of the Trinity, if the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father alone, well, then the Father has two sons. Because what's the difference? You're just using two different words. You're saying he proceeds and he's begotten. But you're just using different words. I mean, the fact is the Son also proceeds from the Father. That's perfectly correct to say. And what's the difference between the Father and the Son? The son, Father just has two sons now because he's... A Holy Ghost proceeds from him, a son proceeds from him. What's the difference between them? Nothing. But the only way to, the only way to conceive of any possible difference between the, Father, between the Son and the Holy Ghost is to say that the Holy Ghost proceeds in some way through the Son, which is what all of Scripture reveals to us, right? Jesus always talks about that. He says, I'm, I will send you the paraclete. I will send you the Spirit. You know, the Father will send the Spirit in my name. Right? He will send the Spirit in my name. He's going through the Son. He was through the Son, right? God, God cannot speak his word without using his breath, right? He cannot speak his word without using his breath. So they go together, but yet the, but they're not simply two different processions. The Holy Ghost must proceed from the Son in some way if he is to be distinct from him. So with our poor human language, it's the closest we can get to understanding these things, as speaking about the Trinity, but he makes the point there clear that well, that, that must be the case, and therefore the Greeks who are just in a tiff about how, how the Westerns want to, want to add that to the creed, that they, they can't go so far as to say that, that the Holy Ghost does not proceed in any way from the Son. That would certainly be heresy. Um, and somebody we may, you may wonder, and I know he kind of wonders about that a lot there in the, in the book, he said, why, why do we call St. Thomas the angelic doctor? Why do we call him the angelic doctor? Because, in fact, you know, see, what, wouldn't we want to call him the human doctor? Because he really, he speaks so beautifully and so clearly about human reality and how human beings reason and know things. Almost be better to call him the human doctor. Well, nevertheless, that's the name we've given him. His doctrine is very angelic. It's very lofty, very heavenly. And, and it's true, though, that he speaks more clearly than any other doctor about angels. It is true that he gives us the true theology of angels and how to, how to speak about them, how to how to use our poor human language to, to speak about these beings that are higher than us in the spiritual realm. <clears throat> and one thing you have to understand is that angels are pure spirits, right? They're pure spirits. They still have in them, they're not eternal, they're created by God. So they still have a potency in them. They're not they're not eternal beings all on their own, existing of themselves. They only exist by God's creative power. But they are pure spirits, and therefore we, we err in our language. We don't speak accurately when we say that angels are here or they are going. They're not in places. Angels can't be in places because they're pure spirits. We can only say they're in a place when they act on that. If they choose in some way to act on a, on a material place, then we could say, in a sense, that an angel's in that place. But angels are pure spirits, so they don't go in places, right? You may remember that if you've ever read uh, 
Dr. Faustus, right, with this, this scene where he's very, you know, Marlowe knew his, knew his scholastic theology, I guess. So Dr. Faustus, you know what it is. Not, not, not to be confused with Dr. Fauci, huh? Right, so, yeah, that's what we're talking here. We're talking here about a doctor who sold his soul to the devil. So it's not at all the same person, right? So, right, anyway, so Dr. Faustus, yes. <laughs> Dr. Faustus, right, so he sold his soul to the devil, and he's, and after, uh, in the midst of making this transaction, he's joking around with Mephistopheles, and he says to him, he says, well, he says, how comes it that thou art out of hell? And so, how, you know, how did you do this? Are you, are you, are you, how'd you get out of there? What are you doing? Do you miss it while you're gone and everything? And, it, and he responds, to it, and Mephistopheles responds to him with no laughter. I says, why, this is hell, nor have I left it. Um, so I, they don't ever, they don't ever leave hell. The, the, devils don't, the devils are angels, they're fallen angels, and they don't leave hell to come bother us any more than the blessed angels leave heavenly beatitude. They don't set aside the vision of God and come down to talk to us. So we take a break and say, no, at every moment they have the beatific vision, and every moment they see God in the face, they don't leave behind heaven to spend some time with us. They don't do that, and, and the devils in hell don't either. So they're they don't, they don't take a break from hell, and that's why they, they come up to bother us, because at least they don't have to be in hell. Nope, they, they are in hell, and in fact, in fact, bothering us is part of their punishment. They don't, they don't enjoy uh, bothering us. It, with that sin of envy and pride that they have, they would just as soon have us share in their damnation, so they, they have nothing better to do but, but tempt us, but, but it doesn't give them any joy to tempt us. It, it doesn't give them in any way a break of their hell. They don't leave hell by coming to torment us. <clears throat> so that's a very, very brief glimpse of angelology with, with St. Thomas. Also very important understanding, something I talked about maybe a couple retreats ago, is that we remember that man was created in the state of sanctifying grace. That's a very good Thomistic teaching that we get, something we get from St. Thomas, that man was created in the state of grace. Was created in the state of grace. So very, very important to understand because the, otherwise we don't really understand, uh, we have a harder time understanding the divine plan for things if we don't understand that God created us, yes, naturally good, but also with supernatural grace. He created us already in the state of grace. It was man's sin that messed everything up. God didn't just drop us in and say, well, let's see how you do battling against evil. No, he already created everything good, everything all set, grace, and it was just man's it was man's sin that set everything on its head. <clears throat> which goes along with his teaching, too, that, which again, I think I brought up a couple of retreats ago, is that, it, which sounds very astounding at first, but then when you think of it, I said, no, that makes perfect sense. St. Thomas insists that man, by nature, loves God above all things. But you're looking at the state of the world around us, well, that can't possibly be true. Man does not love God above all things. You said, but no, but that, Thomas says it can't be any other way. Otherwise, God made a mistake. God made man perverse. God wouldn't create man any other way than loving him above all things. That is how he created us. And on top of that, he infused to us a supernatural love, which is grace. That is how God made us. It's only original sin and the wounds that remain on us because of original sin that it causes us not to be able naturally to love God above all things. One point here now, passing on, and I'll just mention this actually wades into the 
latter era of the more controverted questions and the Thomas, Thomas against certain other schools. But it's important to mention here because it, it's so essential to how uh, Thomas and his whole system of theology is a question which at first might seem like just kind of an annoying question with why, why do you waste your time with these questions that don't have any purpose for us. But the question that he puts early on in the third part of the Summa is said, well, what if man had never sinned? What if all that had gone great? He stayed in the state of grace and never sinned and everything was perfect. Would God still have become man? Would he still have taken on human nature? Would we still have had Christ if, if man had never sinned? Now, this opinion was already brandied about in Thomas's time, and it would continue, especially in the Franciscan school, and especially with Duns Scotus. Poor Duns Scotus. He, has, he got a bad nickname, too. So he was a, Thomas was the dumb ox. Scotus was called Duns Scotus, and that's where we get the word dunce. You know, you get sit in the corner, but the dunce cap, because he, too, was considered kind of dumb when he was, was in class. So poor Duns Scotus, right? But, but Duns Scotus will be a great... Oh, he'll be very much on the other side of things, right, in terms of the way of thinking out philosophy, huh? from the Thomistic way. And he'll proudly proclaim, no, no, how can you imagine a world without Christ? It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful, Christ. You know, how could we imagine that there'd be a universe without God becoming man? It's so beautiful that God did that as an act of love. Of course he would have. Even if man hadn't sinned, he would have done it, done it just out of love for us. Just out of love for us, he would have done it. Right? And Thomas's answer to this, he's not, he's not answering Scotus yet, because he's not around, but Thomas is a generation before, but but he already brings up this possibility, and he answers it. He says, sure, God could have done that. But as theologians, we don't have the right to say he would have done that. Theologians aren't here just to speculate about things and say, well, yeah, I think he would have. No, he said, we have one job alone, to transmit revelation. We have to, we have to transmit in human terms what God has revealed to us. That's the only job of a theologian not to come up with his own opinions and speculations that have no foundation in Revelation. And what does Revelation tell us? The only thing we ever learn from the Bible, from tradition, from all the fathers, the only thing we ever learn is that God became man to save man from sin. It's the only thing we ever hear. We don't ever hear anything from someone saying, oh, but, but even if he hadn't sinned, he would have done it anyway. So we just don't hear it. That's not part of Revelation. God never revealed such a truth to us. We don't have the right to say that. that but we can say God could have. He's almighty. He could have done that. But we can't say that he would have. So the only reason I bring that up is to show that, that, that admirable restraint that we find in the teaching of St. Thomas, that in his method, that no, we must, you know, it, is the sci it is revelation presented scientifically. That's all that theology is. We don't have the right to go anything further than what it, God has revealed. In that sense, we say that's our big answer, too, to the Protestants when they cry out about this. Scripture alone, right? Scripture alone. We say, well, what we believe is not so different. We believe in revelation alone. <laughs> all that God has revealed, that is the object of our faith, is all that God has revealed. We don't believe it's only the Bible. It's, it's Bible, it's tradition. But Bible, tradition, all, that, all that's been handed down through Holy Mother Church. That's the object of revelation. But we believe in revelation alone. We don't believe in things that are just human musings. All of the sacraments of the new law, according to St. Thomas, were instituted immediately by Christ. They were instituted immediately by Christ himself, all seven sacraments, and they contain and confer the grace that they signify. And now in the Thomistic school, which we won't get into at length right now, is they have a, a very explicit way of describing that. 
and what Thomas teaches about that, about how grace is transmitted to us through the sacraments. But the point is that as Catholics, we must hang on to this teaching of Thomas, which is enshrined in the Council of Trent, that the sacraments contain and confer the grace that they signify. They are not just signs by which we manifest our faith. That's a sign that they, the sacraments themselves actually give us grace. <clears throat> and of all the parts of the Summa, so, just so many are so admirable, but, but the, whole, the whole section on the sacraments is just truly a marvel, right? where he has, especially the whole beginning, where he just is this long synthesis of the teachings of the fathers. All the fathers who came before St. Thomas, he beautifully weaves them together to give us the perennial teaching of the church on, on the sacraments. <clears throat> one point here, which I'll mention too, just one specific thing about the sacraments, just we could say so many things, but with regard to the sacrament of penance, and I've brought this up in several talks before, is that we have, it's very important when we're, to our spirituality to understand what it means when we prepare for a good confession. So St. Thomas speaks very specifically about what, what contrition is here with regard to confession. And we understand for the teaching of Thomas is that in order to benefit from the sacrament of penance, you have to be sorry for your sins for a supernatural motive. Right? That's, that's what contrition is. If you don't have that, you can't make a valid confession. You have to be sorry for your sins for a supernatural motive. And, and furthermore, he teaches that Yes, even though you can say, well, okay, at least well, imperfect contrition suffices. So we could, in a sense, say that, yes, the first part of the act of contrition is good enough to make a valid confession. You could almost stop there. You could say, I'm sorry for my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. Right? Well, I understand, those, that, I understand that there's a heaven and a hell, that there, there's a supernatural reward coming here for my actions. I understand I'm accountable for that, so that's why I'm sorry. And he said, yes, but even then, he says, it, there, must, there must be at least a beginning of the love of God there. You, may, you can't just be sorry because you don't want to get roasted. You, know, you have to be sorry because say, well, I'm sorry also because I lost heaven. I lost heaven, and I understand what that means. Heaven's not a pleasure park. You know, it's, not the, it's not the Mohammedan paradise you know, where men have fun and women are staff. Right? So it's like it doesn't, it can't, it has to be something more than that, okay? You have to understand what it means, that heaven is the vision of God, that I'm losing out on the chance to see God in the face, that my only happiness consists, my heart can never rest except in God, and that I'm losing God. I'm losing God by that. And so that's still only the beginning. That's not perfect contrition yet. Right? Perfect contrition is being sorry because you've offended the one whom you love, God, right? That's perfect. But, but at least you have to have that beginning there. Sorry for... Yes, for because I don't want to go to hell, but also because I've lost out on, on the enjoyment of God that, that I want. That's the only thing I want. My heart only wants God, and I'm losing out on that by sinning. So that must at least be there in order to make a good confession. Now, one thing, maybe just the last point here, and then I'll have a little time for questions. It's 4 o'clock Vespers, right? 4.30 Vespers? Oh. oh. Is it? Sure. I do somewhere here, yeah. I lost it. That's all right. I think it's 4 o'clock Vespers, though. Yeah, it's 4 o'clock. Okay, good. So, 
Four o'clock vespers. Anyway, the time we have left here. So just one last thing is that you may know, you may be have heard that, oh, well, unfortunately, one thing where Thomas dropped the ball was the Immaculate Conception. Right? That was just one thing we just, well, you know, you can't, after all, he's a human being and he gets things wrong. So, oops, he got that wrong. Immaculate Conception. Got that one wrong and it would have to wait until afterwards. Duns Scotus will correct him. He'll figure it out. And the Franciscans will be the great heroes who carry the dogma of Immaculate Conception to its great triumph in 1854. Well, certainly, right, certainly we have nothing against the, the, the Franciscan schools, a school full of saints, and we can credit them with all the great work they did in advancing this dogma of the Immaculate Conception. But that is not the full story. And that's not fair to St. Thomas. Thomas did not oppose the Immaculate Conception. He was not opposed to... Mary being completely full of grace to, to Mary being entirely without sin. The issue with Thomas is he said, we have to be very careful with our use of terms here. We cannot ever call into question that every human being, including Mary, has been redeemed by Christ. We redeemed by Christ. And his point was saying that this use of the term immaculate conception and saying that she was somehow redeemed or she was sanctified even before she contracted sin, said, well, careful here, because we may come out saying that she, that she actually wasn't a sinner at all, that she wasn't in need of redemption. She wasn't in need of redemption in any way, and that she was no longer really the subject of Christ's redemption. So he said, we have to be very careful the way we employ our terms here. He had no problem with saying that Mary was sinless. He just said, we have to be careful with this, because remember, in his time, too, we weren't necessarily universally saying that, okay, well, at conception, that's the exact moment when the soul is infused into the body. So, no, it may be, it may be that the soul is infused into the body sometime later, right? Sometime later after conception. That, that possibility was still entertained in St. Thomas's time. And of course, that's used today by people on the other side of the abortion issue to say that, well, oh, see, even St. Thomas wasn't pro-life. It's like, okay, well, so St. Thomas, nevertheless, utterly opposed to contraception, you would still would have considered it a grievous crime to abort a baby at any stage, even if we're still speculating on when exactly the baby got his soul, he still would have considered it a grave sin to commit abortion at any point, or even to commit contraception. So, <clears throat> so certainly Thomas was still totally pro-life. So that's, <clears throat> that's a real pot shot to take in him. But the point is there is that Thomas had no opposition to Mary's, the doctrine of Mary's sinlessness. He said, but we... We need to be careful about throwing around these terms until we say exa exactly what we mean to say that she was conceived without sin. <clears throat> it was only after his time then that this question of conception would be made more precise and they would say, no, there's actually no problem uh, based on our understanding of the human soul and when it's infused into the body. We can say with surety now that, yes, it's at conception and therefore we can say that Mary was conceived in the moment of her conception. But the moment of her conception was the same as the moment of her redemption. And so there'd be no problem with that. But, the, but Thomas and his disciples had no problem with that. In fact, <clears throat> already, already after his time, there were many Dominicans who proclaimed this dogma. It, at the Council of Trent, there was already a petition by 25 Dominican bishops that, that the dogma be defined, already at the Council of Trent. And then after that time, they just began to multiply into the thousands. At the University of Paris, where Thomas taught afterwards, and after, especially after the Council of Trent, it began to the point where every Dominican would take a pledge when he would get his degree to defend the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. So 
say that Thomas was opposed to it, that's, that's really absurd. Nevertheless, it would only be fully developed after, after his time. <clears throat> so I'll just close them with one thing after that I said that there are certain questions that are, that are controverted, and I mentioned one already, the question of the, of the incarnation, of whether it would have happened or not, and things like that. And so you have the, the system, the way of thinking of St. Thomas as opposed to something like the Scotists, where he just says very firmly, he says, we, we don't have the right to talk about that. We can only talk about what's been revealed to us. So that we see there the, the discipline that we have with, with the system of thinking of, of St. Thomas. But I'll just mention one other point here, which, of course, I'm just going to brush on it, because otherwise we could talk about it for, for days on end, and we wouldn't get anywhere. Because, in fact, historically, they didn't get anywhere with this discussion, which was one that I bring to your attention, though, because when we, when I, we present the, the terms that are at stake here, you'll understand right away what we're talking about. It came up at the time of the Protestant revolt, which was what? Well, you have to remember that every heresy in the end is what? Every heresy is an attempt, actually, even though you have the Protestants who say they violently reject reason and they only want to go by faith. In fact, what a heresy is, it's human reason triumphing over the faith. It's saying, no, 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 there's no mystery of faith here at all. Reason has it all figured out, right? That's, look, one of the first big heresies, look at Arius, right? The divinity of Christ. You say, well, it's too complicated here to say what this mystery, right? So, well, no, there's no mystery at all. It's clear, in fact, Christ is less than God. That explains everything, and we're all set, all right? So... Then on the other side, I'll say, no, 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 that's crazy. You can't say that. But on the other hand, it's awfully tricky the way the faith seems to present it. We have to just make it, make it simpler so that there's no mystery. So we'll say, no, in fact, no, 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 Christ is divine. In fact, in fact, the Trinity is just a mirage. In fact, it's just three different masks. It's just one God who sometimes looks like a father, looks like a son, looks like a spirit. But there aren't really three persons. It's just a mirage. It's just our way of thinking of it. See, no mystery. Just one God, right? Right, so that's, that's the way heresies always work. They simplify things and say, to destroy the mystery. And that's what happened here at the close of the 16th century. So in reaction to one heresy in particular, that of the Calvinists, right, who, looking at the most unfathomable mystery of our religion, the whole mystery of salvation, and that how do we reconcile an all-loving, all-powerful God who wills that all men be saved, and yet man truly has free will and men truly do go to hell. How do we reconcile that? God is all-powerful, he's all-loving, and he wants all men to be saved, and yet some men aren't saved. And they truly have free will about that. Even though God's almighty, man truly is free, and he makes free choices. Well. The Calvinist solution, well, easy, right? Just say, okay, um, no, it's, uh, you, you get it all wrong. There's, you, don't you understand there's predestination? Predestination is, so it's, it's a term, we find it, we find it in the fathers, we find it in St. Thomas Aquinas, predestination. But here's, here's how we explain it. Look, God simply has decided from all eternity that some men are going to heaven and others are going to hell. That's it. That's it. Free will, yeah, that's... That's our way of looking at it, but it's not, that's not reality. So re reality is that God has determined everything. So he's determined, he's determined that some men are going to choose him and other men aren't. And so that's it. Some are going to heaven, some are going to hell. Predestined to heaven, predestined to hell. No mystery, solved. Right? And 
this will seem to go against another one, a very earlier heresy in the church, which went in the other extreme, which said that the human will was supreme. And in fact, and in fact, man decides everything, and God's just sort of catching up to man all the time, saying, oh, he did this. I can't believe it. I didn't know he was going to do that. Oh, well, then I'm going to damn it. You know, so, which seems that goes too far in the other direction. How God knows everything that we're going to do. We can't say that, that, God, that man actually does things independently from God's help or from God's knowledge. That's not possible either. So in the Jesuit school, there'll be a certain man by the name of Molina, who will say, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to destroy the Calvinists. I'm going to defeat them, and I'm going to show them how human, the human, human liberty is real. Human liberty is real, and I will show that, in fact, human liberty is not in conflict with, with the divine will, with divine omnipotence. All, it all does work out. And, and he'll write a very long work on this, saying how, explaining how human will is not in conflict with God's omnipotence. Well, the Dominicans, the school of St. Thomas, will react to this and say, no, you Jesuits, you're going too far. You think that you're solving a problem, but you're not. You're, 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 verge, you're on the verge of heresy. Basically, you, you're having, you find this in many, many words. You have this long, convoluted way of saying that, in fact, man does do things that God doesn't know about, that God reacts. He's, he's, he reacts to what man does. He knows some things about what man can do, but the other thing he doesn't know until man does them. You're basically saying that. And so that's heresy, and, and we're going to oppose you. And this quarrel became very violent, where the Molinists were, on, were basically just saying, no, you Thomists, you basically, you're all just Calvinists now. You're just saying that, that you don't, what you teach is no different from the Protestants. And, 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 the, and the Thomists on their side will say, you're just old Pelagians again. You're just saying that man, man's, man's will is supreme and that God, in fact, is not almighty. You know? And so this battle will continue, continue until finally there'll be a commission appointed by the Pope to, where they can debate this and settle out, and then there'll be a, a final decision from Rome one way or the other. And guess who was put in charge of this commission? Who was the mediator? None other than our dear St. Francis de Sales. So he was put in charge of this. So they said that we'll choose the, most, the gentlest, most amiable mind of our time. He will be in charge of this great battle between the Dominicans and the Jesuits. And it will go on and on and on. And what answer do you think St. Francis de Sales will come to the Pope? He'll recommend. He'll say, please, please, please don't condemn either side. And, and in fact, that's what will happen. And Rome will say, this, he said, what, what we do forbid is we forbid each of you to call each other heretics. You're not allowed to do that. You can debate on philosophical grounds. You can say that your reasoning is not as good as our reasoning. You can go ahead back and forth on that, but nobody has the right to call each other heretics because you're not. Okay? Dominicans, you're not Calvinists. Molinists, Jesuits, you're not, you're not Pelagians. No, both of you are trying to, de to defend the Catholic faith. Yeah, you're doing your best, but uh, you can go ahead and continue to discuss wording, philosophical arguments, but you are not allowed to call each other heretics. Case closed, we're just leaving it alone. So that's how they did it. And so it was never resolved. And so in the meantime, over the, over the centuries, they've continued to write works. You know, the Dominicans arguing against the Molinists, um, Molinists arguing against the Thomists. Um, they continue to go back and forth like that, but it was never, it was never. Now, still, you have a, you know, there's still, I don't want to say bitterness, but there's still a little rivalry there, where it's a, usually if you talk to any, any Thomists, they'll say, yeah, but I mean, we were going to win. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we almost won. The committee was like totally in our favor. I mean, Molina was going to be condemned as a heretic, and then St. Francis de Sales intervened, and it didn't happen. Well, yeah, it didn't, but it's, it's, 
as for the good of the church, that, that that never happened. So that was the most violent opposition between the schools that ever occurred. And indeed, we see that the, the wisdom of Holy Mother Church and that that was never definitively decided. Uh, however, uh, we, we can see that perhaps it brings to light something, though, right? Which is that regardless of which school you were to embrace on that question, because as a Catholic, you're free to embrace one or the other, or neither, but, uh, but it, it brings to light something is that when we discuss these things, when we discuss theology, just as we said before, our principle has to be we only transmit what God has revealed. And above all, in theology, we must never destroy the mystery. We must never destroy the mystery. As soon as we do that, then we're in heresy. We all, we're here to adore the mysteries of our religion, not to, not to figure them out, not to put them under the magnifying glass of reason and say we have it all figured out. We don't figure out the Trinity. We don't figure out the Incarnation. We don't figure out this mystery of, of God's divine election, you know, the mystery of God's omnipotence, his love for man, his will for our salvation, and perfect human liberty. We will never reconcile these things in the human mind. Our reason can't fathom that mystery. It goes beyond us, so it's a mystery to adore. It's not for us just to figure out. And so as soon as we start to do that, we destroy the mystery, and then we're no longer being good theologians. So with that, then, I'll leave my considerations to, and with the 10 seconds that remain, we'll have uh, some, some questions. Oh, now the camera goes off. Goodbye. <laughs>